Well, if you have your <coughs> Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 19. And uh, last week we uh, we really focused on one of the great principles found anywhere in the Bible uh, on human nature. And uh, that was the concept of the, the devices that man will invent. Uh, to get him around the Word of God. Uh, we talked about verse 21. We talked about some other verses, but I really wanted to focus on this last week, where it says, There are many devices in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. And, um, you know, that's a great verse. And, you know, I've been a, I've been a student of the Bible for over 40 years. And I've learned anything. I've learned that there are no experts when it comes to the Word of God. There's no such thing as a Bible scholar. Uh, there's no such thing as someone who learns all the Bible and knows the Bible. Uh, if I've learned any great truth out of my time in the Word of God is that the more you learn the Bible, the greatest thing you learn is how much little less you really know the Bible. The Bible is a book that is unsearchable. And uh, as a student, we're just all are on different levels of trying to uh, put the Word of God together. And, you know, and along with the Bible, you know, I, I, I became a student of other things uh, that go hand in hand with the Bible. And I think that this is a downfall with so many of God's people. Uh, many of them will study the Bible, but they'll never see the other studies that need to go along, that go hand in hand with the Bible, that really gives you the... Um, the insight into everything that the Bible impacts. Yesterday, uh, in our singles ministry, we talked about, uh, started, as I said, our three-year Bible Institute. And my goal was to take these young men and young ladies and really uh, develop them. They've already committed to work hand-in-hand with me by my side and, and do what we do here. Now, my commitment to them is to really take them and really develop them into everything that God uh, wants them to be. And I told them, I said, if there was one word that really defines knowing the Bible. It would be the word depth. Getting a depth in the Word of God. And the way you get a depth in the Word of God is to not just make the Bible your study. When you get into the Bible and you begin to study the Bible, it's going to open up all the other areas that really need to be studied that will give you not only the Bible, but the depth of the Bible. And uh, you'll see that it'll, it'll give you the resources of being able to uh, talk about many things on many different levels that really helps accent uh, the Word of God, God's, God's truth. And I remember I, remember I, I became a, study, a, a student of history. I remember uh, reading uh, in Proverbs chapter 22 and 23 that uh, God has landmarks. And I remember the, the landmark of the Old Testament uh, was the nation of Israel, and the landmark of the New Testament is the New Testament local church. And I remember that, you know, I've learned, looking back on it now, that there's no really understanding of history without uh, the Bible and really understanding how it all kind of goes to go together. Because the God of the Bible is the God of history. We always talk about God being the God of prophecy. Well, I want to tell you something. He's also the God of history. And you can't separate the two. I remember I became a student of, of languages. 
I remember that uh, I, as I was coming through this, it struck me one day that when God wrote the Bible, he only put the Bible in three languages. All down through history, there have been three major languages that God decided to put the Bible into that were universal languages of the day. And I remember asking myself, now why did God do that? Why, and, and I realized that once I identified those three languages... Boy, everything became crystal clear. There's a lot of guys out there today who have a trouble with the uh, King James Bible being the Word of God. When I talk about how that uh, it's the absolute standard for everything uh, that God gave us in English. And they have a tough time understanding that because they'll always give you the argument, well, you know what, what about all the other people that never spoke English, that do not speak English? And I would remind them that in the Old Testament, God only put the only put the word of God in in Hebrew. And I would ask you, what about all the other nations back in the Old Testament that did not speak Hebrew? And I'll tell you something else. Hebrew was a very small language with a very small group compared to the world of the Hittites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, who not only hated the people of God, but they hated the language by which they spoke. Study of languages was an important thing for me. I remember, I remember I became a student of nations. And I realized that all history and all the Bible revolves around nations. Then I found out that in the Bible there's ten fundamental primary nations that run all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And all the Bibles built around that. I, through the process, I became a student of the Middle East. I quickly, I quickly found out as the Bible uh, lays out uh, over there in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 35 that all history repeats itself. And I saw the Middle East as the place where it all started in Genesis, and yet it's the place that it all winds up in the book of Revelation. And as I began to go through the Bible and study the Bible, all these other studies of me being a student began to unfold themselves. I, I became a student of, of outer space. I mean, uh, I mean, I just, it's an incredible thing. I mean, the Bible talks about the eight ordinances of heaven. Eight specific things mentioned in the Bible that are in outer space out there that mean something in the Bible. And when I saw that, I realized that I'm never going to learn the Bible as a student without getting all these other classes. You know, it's the same way when you go to grade school, you go to high school, you go to college. You don't take just one class. You take multiple classes, and all those multiple classes of you being a student will form the central thing that you want to come out of school with. Well, Bible's the same way. If there's a central thing you want to come out of the Bible with, then you're going to have to get the other classes. You're going to have to be students of them. I talked about, you know, the Bible talks about God's plan for the universe. The Bible talks about how that, uh, you know, there's a structure in the universe. There's a shape to the universe. But I got to tell you, in all my studies as a student, there was never a study that taught me more about life and about everything in the Bible than the study that I took on human nature. I'm going to tell you this morning that a study in the Bible of human nature, why we do the things we do, the whys and the reasons, the cause and the effect of who we are, was the greatest single study that God ever taught me through the Word of God. And I'll tell you, man's reaction to the Word of God and the things of God. It'll be the single greatest study that you ever embark on. Because, you know, I never get to go in outer space yet. 
I, I never get to, I never get to go back in history. I've, I've never really been to the Middle East. There's places that I studied that, that I, I can study, but I'm not really familiar with them because I've never really been there, lived there. But human nature, we're around human nature all the time. Human nature unfolds itself in every aspect of our life. You and I are human, and we have a human nature about us. So it's not only just studying what people do when it comes to the reaction to the Word of God and the things of God. It comes down to what you and I do with it also. I began to see uh, very early uh, his plan in Genesis chapter 3, where God wanted to redeem his fallen creation. He wanted to come to Adam and Eve, and he wanted to undo the terrible damage that they had done. Immediately. Immediately, Adam and Eve, as a picture of human nature for the next 6,000 years, what do they do? They fired up that old smoke machine. They fired up that old machine that puts out a cloud that they can hide in. They put out a smoke screen right away. First thing in the Bible, when God came down to fix what man had broke, you begin to see the devices. And Adam and Eve, very early on, and it sets the model for you and for me down through history and what you got to deal with, with people, yourselves, circumstances in life. And they invent all the devices that takes the place of God and His counsel, yet wants to keep everybody looking good and everybody respectable, everybody legitimate. I don't know if you've ever seen this or not, talking about devices and human nature, but in the first three chapters of Genesis, you have the beginning of it all, the devices. In Genesis chapter 3 is the first place recorded where you see the devices come into play. Adam and Eve. When you look at Adam and Eve, you see the seven basic elements that we face in all of our children. That if they're not fixed and they're not Work through will lead to problems. I mean, stop and consider. Adam and Eve were like little children. They were in innocence. They were just like your kids. But you begin to see in their life, once they fell and they lost the image of God, you immediately begin to see the same little elements that you find in your children when they're little because human nature starts that early. Bible says that Adam and Eve were, when God created them, they were naked. And the Bible tells us that, you know, you came into this world naked, you're going to leave this world naked. I've never understood people who would grasp that verse thinking that uh, you're, going to, you're going to have everything in life and you get everything in life like you're thinking you're going to take it with you. You're not going to take it with you. You came into this world with nothing, you're going to go out with nothing other than the Lord Jesus Christ if you get saved. So they were born naked and yet they were not ashamed to be naked. Like your little kids. How many times have you been embarrassed because somebody's over and you got a two-year-old or a three-year-old and they're in the other room and, and suddenly whether your, your company's there or somebody's there, you know, they come running through the thing stark naked. They don't care. And you know, they were born naked and they, the, the, moment, the moment they began to realize they were naked after what God told them to do, you know what they did? They tried to cover their own nakedness. They tried to get some fig leaves. To, to, now they knew they were naked. And, 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 and somebody needs to come to the understanding in time that you're naked physically and you're naked spiritually. 
Nakedness was always one of Israel's problems down through the Old Testament. They didn't have any shame of their nakedness either. And the next thing that you see that Adam and Eve did, just like little children do, that formed the basis of human nature in Genesis 3.8, when they did something that was wrong, they ran and hid. How many times are your kids growing up when they're playing in there and you hear something crash in the living room, walk in there, and there ain't nobody found from here to Texas. They're gone, man. Amen, amen. And then the other aspect of human nature, when you finally do catch them, and you finally have to face it, you know what they do? They do the same thing we do. They blame it on somebody else. When Adam, when God came to Adam and he said, Adam, what did you do? You don't look the same anymore. What happened? You, you, you're in a fallen state. You know what Adam said? He said, well, Lord, the wife that you gave me, like it was God's fault. When he came to Eve and he says, Eve, what's wrong with you? You're not Snow White anymore. What happened? One of the seven dwarfs show up? What took place? Something changed about you. She says, well, the devil. And you find early on in their life that they have all the traits that we have. And you know, I'll tell you something else. You put your kids at a table and you put spinach salad right here with asparagus, broccoli, and you put a big bowl of cherries over here, or fruit and sliced bananas, they'll take the fruit every time. Little kids always have, always have an affinity for picking the wrong things. And you know what? If you don't fix that early, they'll be picking the wrong things all their life. Ever notice how little kids are always touching things they're not supposed to touch? How many times a day? Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Next time you touch it, we cut off one finger. Second time, we cut off the other finger. Don't touch that. And you notice how they're always, they're always trying to put things in their mouth that they shouldn't put in. Now, those are the fundamental, basic patterns of human nature found in Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that's found in every child because your child, as cute as they may be, and you got some cute ones, as as loving as they may be, as snugly as they may be, they have got an old sin nature. Amen. And that old sin nature will play to human nature. And if a child doesn't get through the course of his life growing up, as he grows those things fixed and gets the counsel from his parents, then he will develop the same devices that Adam and Eve did. To justify the continuance of, of these things uh, in his adult life. He won't see anything wrong or she won't see anything wrong with dressing uh, half naked and, and no shame to it at all. They will have no problem hiding their sin and not facing up to their responsibility when they get older. They'll have no problem when you try to hold them accountable that they'll always blame it on somebody else. Well, it's this person's fault. Well, it's so-and-so. Well, you know, my little boy does these things because he's hanging out with so-and-so. Or my girl is the way she is because so-and-so ruined her. And they'll always go through life just like Adam and Eve when God says, do this. They'll always be picking the wrong thing. And as they get older, they'll always be going places that they should not go. And in time, yes, they will. They'll be putting the things in their mouth that they should not be putting in. Amen. Amen. In fact, Genesis chapter 3. 
The beginning of human nature as we know it. The beginning of the devices. We find five great truths about God, the devil, and human nature. And the devices that man invents to get around God's counsel. And I've seen this all of my life. First of all, the root... The root of all questioning and doubting the Word of God will always be satanic. There are people that all they do is question, did God really know what he's talking about? And that's what the devil did when he showed up. He says, yea, hath God said to Eve, but when you look at it, it wasn't a period or an explanation mark after it. It was a question mark. He came to Eve, who had a relationship with God, and the first doubt that he showed in her mind was, did God really know what he was talking about when he said what he said? Now, I know some of you don't like this, but it's, it's just the way it is. You get in churches today, I'm telling you, 99% of the church's services today, what you have is so simple. Whole congregations getting together and a pastor telling them that God didn't know what he was doing when he wrote the Bible. So he's going to correct it by saying a better reading should be, or this is an unfortunate translation. And God's people just never see that it goes back to the baseline of human nature, which is satanic in Genesis chapter 3, when the devil came to Eve, a type of the church, and said to her, do you think God really knows what he meant when he said what he said? Amen. And you know what the devil did? He misquoted what God said. And then you know what Evie baby did? Human nature kicked in and she jumped right in and added to it also. And I'm telling you, the idea that you put a question mark about God and the word of God will always have its baseline with the devil. I'll tell you there's something else too. Sin starts on this planet with simply adding and subtracting from God's word to do what somebody wanted to do. And then creating a device to justify it. I mean, the Bible says that the fruit, what was wrong with it? The Bible says that it was good for food. It was, it was pleasant to, be, to the eyes and it was desired to make one wise. What is really wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. God said stay away from it. But you see, that's human nature. We have this thing in us that when God tells us to do something, we just want to do the opposite thing. And you've got to change that. You've got to fix that. And the only way you fix that is through the counsel of the Lord. Now, the next thing, the third thing. Man's desire to exalt himself over the word of God and God's counsel will always be satanic. Who are you and I to correct what God said? We hear people, we sing songs all the time, how God can do this and God can do that. How many times somebody gets up and gives a miracle of how God did this and God did that. We'll give God credit and give God the ability to do great miracles and great things. I mean, coming through the Bible, he split the Red Sea. I mean, come on, come through the Bible and Joshua, he stopped the sun and the moon and it gave him an extra long day. You realize all the things that God did that are absolutely, scientifically, completely impossible. Yet he did it. And we can't believe that he can write a book and keep it without any mistakes in it. Amen. Where in the world are we coming from? I'll tell you something else. Satan is the real force behind higher education and intellectualism and science. <laughs> I know a lot of people don't like that because you're educated. I'm not nothing wrong with you being educated. I am. I got through the sixth grade just fine, man. I got it. 
But when you start talking like this, people say, oh, he's against education. I'm going to tell you this. Higher education will always be at its base level to get around the Word of God. He says, when you eat this fruit, you're going to be like the gods knowing good and evil. Wouldn't it be a great thing in your life if you and I didn't know anything about good and evil? We just had a relationship with God. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Wouldn't it be nice in the morning when you got up that you wouldn't have to worry about anything that you thought, anything that you said, anything that you did would displease God. You'd wake up in the morning and you'd be there, he'd be, you'd put his arms around him, you'd put your arm around you, and you'd walk down through the day together, and you would just have a wonderful time, and you wouldn't have to be on guard. First John chapter 1 verse 7 and 9 would be out the window, no confessing, because there's no sin, it's just you and him. And there's never a time now where you're going to have to worry about doing something, saying something that's going to upset God. You're just going to have a wonderful day of fellowship with him, because you don't know Good from evil. What a wonderful state that would be. You know what? That was God's original plan. But it wasn't, it wasn't God that messed it up. It was man that messed it up. I preach funerals all the time. And I hear them around the casket. Kind of like the water cooler at the office. You know, people start talking around them. And they'll always be saying, uh, somebody young dies or somebody, a baby dies. And they'll simply say, I don't understand. I've seen people get mad. I've seen people get upset and get mad at God because they say, well, I don't understand why God would take a little child. Why would God take this person? Why would God do that? Well, he can't be a loving God. How could God? God's a sadist. How could God must sit up there and enjoy the pain of a mom and dad? losing a little baby. I got news for you. That was never God's design. God's design, there would be no hospitals. God's design, there would be no funeral home. God's design, there would be no undertaker. It was man who with his devices overrode what God wanted to do. So, enjoy it. It's just that simple. I've always enjoyed, I I enjoyed the science aspect of, of things like outer space, like NASA. I think NASA does some incredible things. I mean, the technology that we have uh, to send a man to the moon and bring him back, uh, the technology that we have that they're actually planning about sending people to Mars to colonize Martin, it never happened, but, but the, the, the technology. I mean, you sit down here and you send a probe to Mars and a little rover pops out and drives around there, you know, with a camera on it, and it takes, you send it a signal to do something, and it takes 30 minutes for it to get there, And it sends pictures back, takes another 30 minutes for it to get back to you. That's incredible to me. Incredible. You know, back in 1977, which was really the beginning of of what we know as the uh, deep space program that we all have, they sent a probe out called Voyager, uh, Voyager 1. And Voyager 1 was just a little thing compared to what they have today. It wasn't very big at all. But its function was to go out and study the outer solar system. Study the great gas giant planets out past Mars. And Mars is the point of deparkation when you get into the outer planets, which would next one would be uh, Jupiter, Saturn, and Uranus, and then Neptune and Pluto all down the line there. And that was the farthest that they were going to go out there. And that was in 1977. And they, 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 they sent that probe out there, and now it's actually, within the last year, has left our, our solar system, and now it's really into deep space. 
It's, I don't know how many trillions and trillions and trillions and hundreds of trillions of miles that it is. It's traveling at 25, 26,000 miles a second through space. They put in there a little plaque just in case it bumped into E.T. someplace out there in the, in the universe in time to come. They put a little plaque in there of a, of a figure of a man and a woman and a little child so whoever would find it know that we believed in family units. They put in copies of our newspapers, New York Times, Chicago Tribune. They put in experts of our music. They put in a, a communique a through numbers, like I talked about Thursday night. Fully expecting that sometime, someplace, they would bump into some life form out there, and then they put the sun with our position so they could maybe find their way back. Let me tell you something. When they finally come down here, they won't need your plaque to get here. You know why NASA sends people to the moon? You know why they send people to Mars, want to send people to Mars? You know why they're so interested in, was there any water ever out there in the other universe other than Earth? You know why? Because water is the component of all life. But you know why that they're so, they send people to the moon and go out out of space and do all that they do? They do it for one reason. They don't even know what this reason is, but I do because I got the brains they don't have because of the Word of God. You know why they do it? For one reason. They want to prove the Bible wrong and they're right. Or one of those guys who believes that there's a God and believes the Bible. It's the way it is. You know, the, 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 the last thing is that man will take part of the Bible, he'll discard the rest, and then he'll develop a device that looks good to most folks, but has nothing more, uh, but it has nothing to do with anything around God. And then he'll build through these devices everything around him uh, so he don't have to take what the Word of God says. And it forms in our life something I talk to you about all the time. In the Christian world today, we have two venues, really. One is the devices of man, the other one is the counsel of God. And everything that you look at, everything you're faced with will come down to one of the two. What you have to face as a Christian will either be Christian and spiritual, which is sound really good. A lot of things out there in the Christian world look Christian and they look spiritual. The problem is they're not biblical nor they're scriptural. See, it isn't about how the thing looks. It is about what is it based on. And you see it all the time. And without a doubt, human nature was the greatest thing that I ever studied. Now, that's kind of like my official response to the human nature based on 40 years in the Bible. Dealing with thousands of people. Dealing with every problem imaginable. Uh, I mean, uh, coming through the Word of God uh, so many times I can't hardly remember it myself. Uh, preaching and teaching, what, four or five times a week for, uh, for over 40 years now? And, and watching men and women, saved men and women, saved and lost. I watched them all of my life hear counsel from God week after week. And yet never received the instruction because they always had a device to block the Word of God and want to pretend that they're okay. That's the basic concept of human nature. Get as far away from God as I can, but keep looking as good as I can. And yes, there are many devices in a man's heart. But at the end of the day, the counsel of the Lord, that will stand. And without a doubt, the greatest single study of all the studies I took as a student, and still taken, of all the studies that I took has been the observation and study of man's reaction to the Word of God. 
through his fallen image, human nature, how he responds to it. I've seen people come to church week after week after week, year after year after year. Here's some of the best preaching. Not talking about here. Here's some of the best preaching. It's pretty good here. Here's some of the best preaching you ever heard in your life and never do one thing with it. Human nature. Incredible. Now, along with that, we want to move into where we're at today. And we're going to pick it up today in chapter 19, verse 22 and 23. Now, I want to read it for you, and then we're going to make some comments on it. And it says this, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 22 and 23. It says, The desire of a man is his kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. The fear of the Lord tendeth the life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. Drake, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on my preaching this morning? Thank you so much, Lord, for just everything that you do for us, Lord. Thank you for dying on that cross and Amen. forgiving us of our sins, Lord. And just please bless our pastor, Lord, and give him words to say that will convict and motivate our hearts to, to live for you, Lord, and to be good servants for you. Thank you so much for the word of God that you've given us. And Help us just to apply it into our lives each and every day, Lord, and just to love it with all our heart and our soul and our strength and our mind. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, buddy. I love you very much. I thank God every day for bringing you to our church here. Now, verse 22 says, The desire of a man is his kindness, and a poor man is better than a liar. Now, this is a great principle that I want to talk about for a few minutes based on what we talked about earlier because like an introduction with our on the aspect of devices that man invents in his heart to get around the Word of God. And, you know, this is a great principle that teaches us uh, not, uh, it's not what we do that counts, but rather the attitude of the motive behind what we do. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the desire. And this is lost today. Uh, it's not about ever what you and I do as a Christian. The real key is the motivation and your desire behind what you do. Uh, two great examples of this, a lot of them, but two great is the judgment seat of Christ. You know, when you stand and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it's not going to be about what we did or what we didn't do. You're going to have people there, guys there that build huge churches. You're going to have guys there that build small churches. You're going to have Christians there that spent their whole life, from their viewpoint, doing and serving God. And yet, to our dismay and to our shock, they're going to wind up losing every reward they ever had. And we look at that and we wonder, well, here's a man or a woman that, that gave their whole life and did all kinds of things for God. Listen, it's not about what you do or what you don't do. It's about the motive and the desire and the attitude of heart behind why you're doing it. I, if I could give you any, you young kids, any advice at all, and you older kids too. If I could give you any advice at all, I'd simply tell you this. Make sure that whatever you do for God, you've got the right motive behind what you do. It's imperative that you do that. I'll tell you something else is the Bible. We, we talk about studying the Bible. We know we talk about all the things. And we got to, I told these to the kids in, in Bible Institute yesterday when we started. I'm going to tell you something. Studying the Bible is a great thing. Studying the Bible is a wonderful thing. But I want you to know, you don't learn the Bible because you study it. A guy asked me years ago, he says, Bobby says, what is the key to learning the Bible? And he says, I guess you got to study because the Bible says to study thyself, show thyself approved. And I said, well, you got to study it, but, that, but that's not really the key. 
And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I should never study my Bible without praying for it over it first. And he says, I just need to have some time. I've heard you say that, that you pray about and God open up the scriptures to you. And he says, I guess that's it. And I said, well, that's important too, but that's not the key. Hey, the key to the Bible and learning the Bible is not you studying it, not you reading it, or not you praying over it. The key to you learning the Bible is do you love it? Do you love it more than anything else on this earth? Because if you do, then the motive behind what you do, your desire, will always be right. It's just that simple. People have a tough time with that today. Desire for the Word of God. Now in our text, here's a man that his kindness to others is the motive and the motivation and his true desire in his heart behind what he does. His attitude of heart. Now this is an incredible principle. And it will, be, it will really separate Christianity and Christians very clearly and cleanly in a biblical way. Now what I'm about to say is this. I want to speak to many of you this morning. And I want to say something to you. This is not a good morning. Everybody wanted me to sit in a chair. This is not a message I can preach sitting down. I'm going to block everything outside of my mind. And I'm going to focus on your faces. And I want to tell you something today based on this verse that is so meaningful to me. And so precious to me. And many of you fit exactly what I'm talking about today. And you will see when I'm done what I'm talking about. And I, and I must confess something to you. I stand amazed at many a time with some of you. I really do. I, I stand absolutely amazed at why some of you do what you do the way that you do it. Now I know, and I would never pretend to believe that I can read a person's heart. I know that. That's impossible. Some people think they can, but of course they can't. But it's very clear from the Bible that what you say and what you do or you don't do will define your attitude of heart because the Bible says that uh, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And that's pretty close. Your desire of kindness in working with others. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 27 says this, Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is the power of thine hand to do it. You know what that verse is saying? It's saying if you got the ability to make somebody's day better, you ought to do it. If you got the ability to give somebody what they need, then you ought to do it. You and I ought to be so in tune. Did you get that for me? Right? You and I ought to be so in tune with the people around us that we... Thank you. That we, we see what they need. And we, and, and we can read the fact that they need encouragement. Or they need this. Or they'll come to you and they say, hey, I'm studying this and could you help me with this? And you, you, you understand that you have within your hand the ability to do good to somebody. You know what will be the determining factor whether you do or whether you don't? Your attitude of heart of kindness toward them. 
Are you so busy in your own world and your own career that you want to do that you just have blocked out the kindness that God has given to you that you might display to somebody else? Is your life so soured because of whatever in your life, the bad circumstances, the situations that you had to deal with? Does your walk around look like somebody baptized in dill pickle juice? Is your life turned so sour southwise that you, you have lost all of the kindness that you could be given to somebody else? Your desire of kindness in working with others. Some of you, your pure true motive comes through by how you take all the abuse that comes your way in dealing with people. I want to say something to you, and I'm not saying this or preaching anything, feeling sorry for you or for me or anybody. I'm just telling you the truth. If you ever decide to get into the ministry, if you ever decide to do the ministry, you're getting into one of the hardest jobs that you're ever going to get into in life. You're going to get into a scenario where you're going to, it's going to be the hardest single thing that you ever have to do. The ministry will be without a doubt done the right way, the hardest job on this planet. The reason being because it requires a constant desire of kindness in all situations. It requires the right motive. You don't have a time when you're working with people to get the wrong attitude. They may get the wrong attitude. You don't have the liberty to do that. You're going to deal with some tremendous positive situations. And you're going to deal with a lot of negative situations. You and I do not have the liberty, nor do we have the, have the right to develop an attitude with somebody who's got one. I think the ministry, put it in one sentence, and this is why so many people can't do it. But the ministry on a lower bottom line is simply this. Reaching out to people, giving the kindness that God has given you to other people, fully knowing that you're putting yourself out there and probably there's a very good chance you're going to get used, hosed, and abused by doing it. But that's okay. That's okay. One time, those of you who have watched the, watched the Band of Brothers, Dick Winters was always a, a, a hero of mine long before the series ever came out. Tremendous combat leader. Tremendous leader. Tremendous leader. I remember one time that they were thrown into Bastogne at the Battle of the Bulge to hold off the, the Germans who were trying to take Bastogne, which was the key because they had six roads coming into it. And if the Germans got it, it was going to be a lot of problems. And so they pulled them out of, uh, out of the middle of the night, didn't have any warm clothes, coldest winter in Belgium that there's ever been. Didn't, um, didn't have any ammunition. I mean, it was a terrible situation. And not only that, the, the worst came is when von Runsted and finally wanted Bastogne so badly that he completely completely circled and cut off Bastogne. Nobody could get in, nobody could get out. And you had normal combat troops in there from the 28th Division and some of those places that were just having a heart attack. They, they thought for sure there was going to be, there was going to be taken prisoner. At the great x-ray uh, crossroads, they had a medical facility. The Germans captured that. They captured every doctor, every nurse, every wounded person, and they completely took the medical thing out of it. Took them all prisoners of war. 
And they come over to Dick Winters and, and they're surrounded. They don't have any food. They don't have any warm clothes. They're in foxholes when the, when the temperature's, uh, you know, 10 below zero. They're freezing to death. If they do attack them, they got nothing to fight with, throw rocks at them. And somebody come up to Dick Winters in, in the middle of that terrible time. And he says, you do know that we're surrounded, don't you? Worried to death. Old Winters looked at him back and he says, we're paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. You're Christians. You're supposed to be in the middle of the fight. You're Christians. You're supposed to be able to take it. You're Christians. God gave you His kindness through the Calvary's cross. You have that kindness. And He gave it to you to give to others. And if you think that's going to be an easy task in the face of what the devil's going to try to do and what human nature is going to do when you try to give it the things of God to them? You're supposed to go through the tough times for Him. You know why? Because He went through them for you. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if God's Son quit on the cross like most of us quit when it gets too tough? When He looked down and saw the devil waiting for Him at Golgotha's hill? I saw the Roman soldier with the big spikes and, and all the things. It would have been just so easy for him to say, you know what? I went as far as I'm going to go with this. How many times God's people, in the very face of him going all the way for you, looked at the opposition down the road and said, I can't do this. Hey, you're Christians. You're supposed to be surrounded. You're Christian. You're supposed to be in the middle of it. You're Christian. You're supposed to take your stand for others who cannot take your stand. Sometimes you have to fight for people who can't fight for themselves. Sometimes you have to stand for people who can't stand for themselves. You don't do that with a wrong motive. You don't do that with a wrong attitude of heart. And the ministry is putting yourself out there with people to get hosed. If they decide not to do what's right. And most of the time, you will. And most of the time, they'll blame you. Now, this is why so many pastors quit the ministry. And I know that you're not in that world, but I am. And I, I, I talk with them, see them, and hear about it all the time. They just, uh, most pastors can't wait till they get, uh, I was talking to a guy who has never done anything in his life anyhow. And he now turns 65 and he's out of there, man. I'm retired. And to his, his, his mind, I did my share. I did this and I'm, I'm done now. Let somebody younger take it over. I'm out of this thing. And you know what the real bottom line is? I'm not going to put myself out there to get abused anymore. Know that he ever did. But I want to tell you something. If you ever lived but be 60, 65 and you spent a good portion of your life in the Word of God and God has grown you and built you and put you where you need to be and brought you through some things, when you hit 60, 65, maybe even 70, 75, you're probably the most valuable to God that you could ever be. So here's a guy, Christians, they come to a point where they just get everything together that needs to be ready to go. And now they bail out. You know why? Not going to take the pressure anymore. Not going to take the abuse anymore. I question their very motive from day one. Hey, in the ministry, I watch some of you. I watch you get beat up. I watch you get lied about. I watch you get misquoted. I watch you get misrepresented. I've seen people try to assassinate your character. I've seen them try to hurt you. I've seen them try to go out of the way to hurt your kids. I've seen them set you up. I've seen them blame for you for things that you didn't do. 
My favorite saying, and I say this all the time, and I'm used to it. You spend 40 years in hot water, you tend to get hard boiled. (laughs) But when it comes to the ministry and people, know this truth. Know it. Get it down. And if you can't grasp it, don't get in it. I'm telling you, in the ministry, serving God, no good deed will go unpunished. It's just that simple. I tell pastors all the time, I get calls from them, you know, hey, I'm struggling, Bob, and can you help me with this and tell me with that? And I, I, I tell them all the time, if you can't take it, then go get a nine to five job someplace. If you can't handle the pressure of where you're at and dealing with those things because you can't give kindness out all the time, no matter what somebody gives back to you, then go get a job where you can leave it, start at nine, go home at five, and leave it at the office. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, the more I'm around people, the better I like dogs. If you can't take it, stay out of the ministry. Somebody said one time, it takes a special kind of person to be in the ministry. No, it doesn't. Any one of you could do what God called you to do because that's what he saved you for. Listen, it doesn't take a special kind of person to do the ministry. It just takes a special kind of attitude about the ministry to do the ministry. It has to be your desire to give to them what God gave to you in spite of the opposition. There's not a day in your life in the ministry that you can ever look at it and say, you know what, I'm going to give it back to them just like they gave it to me. Hire somebody else to do it. You can't do it yourself. I'm kidding. There can never be a time in your life. You know why? Because your desire has to be kindness. It has to be kindness. The ministry is 24-7. It's not something that you go in at 9 o'clock and clock out at 5. The ministry is simply this. Before you can ever see, before you'll ever see, working with people, before you'll ever see the goodness of God come through their life, you're going to have to go through in most cases, if not all cases, but certainly many cases, the darkness of old human nature, which is despicable. And you're going to have to keep the right attitude about it. You're going to have to realize that human nature is always going to be against God. And there's people out there that all of their lives, they have struggled through things. And you may be the only light that they ever get. The fact that they got a bad attitude doesn't necessitate you getting one. You may be all they have. And you know what keeps you focused? The desire. The desire to be kind. Based on the kindness that God showed me. I've seen some of you go the extra mile, the extra mile, and the extra mile. I've seen some of you helping people. I've seen some of you do great acts of kindness to them and for them. I've watched it. I marvel at it. I really do. I watch you. I watch you have your own family. I watch you have your own jobs. I watch you how you do all those things. And I watch you. I watch you. I watch you how that in spite of that, you just keep giving to them what they need. You find the time. You find the time. And I've seen some of you do incredible acts of kindness. I I mean, I've seen you just, you take it and put up with it. 
I've seen some of you just do uh, whatever they needed. You were there for them. And then at some point, they'll, they'll turn on you. And, 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 they'll, and they'll never look back. Never one time will they ever thank you. I've seen some of you be in a hospital while a little baby was dying. And I've watched you give up your holidays. I've watched you give up your own family. I've watched you be there when they needed you. I've watched some of you when it came to somebody dying or somebody, in a hospital, or somebody sick or somebody struggling with something. I've watched you run to them, be there for them. Take care of their kids. Pick up this. Do that. I've watched your unselfishness, your kindness. And I've watched them turn around and put a sharp stick in both your eyes. And yet, you know what? You know what amazes me? In spite of all that, you never lost your love and your kindness for the next person that God put in your life. You didn't ever run out of kindness. Your kindness meter never went to zero. You took a lump, you took the hit, and yet when God put somebody else in your life, you were just as fervent for them as you were the last ten people. Amazes me. It amazes me. It amazes me. I mean, I get it. I get paid to do this job. You don't. Not in this life. I mean, it just amazes me. In spite of it all, you're like the man in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22. That your motive and your desire behind what you do is to be and to do what God wants you to do. Your desire is kindness for others. And it never dissipates. No matter what somebody says about you or does to you. You just keep getting up and taking care of the next person. It's real with you. Your kindness knows no limits when it comes to people. You have come to the place in your life where you understand why people do the things that they do. And you never take it personal. You know, when it comes to people, I learned this years ago. Maybe it'll help some of you. I think part of the problem is when we work with people, when we deal with people, sometimes we have expectations are not real expectations I I tell people all the time you know one of the things to try to safeguard you in getting yourself into a bad situation where you can get hurt is never never want somebody to do right more than they want to do it and that is a good solid piece of advice because I've seen it so many times where somebody wants somebody to do what's right and that person won't do what's right and so they'll start shortcutting the principles to help them do what's right and they'll wound up making a mess out of the thing. Hey, I, I, I want you to do right. I really do. I really do. I want you to know all the Bible. I want you to learn the Bible. I want you to know everything that you can know about God and the Word of God. But you know what? I don't want it one, one inch more than you want it. I, I can't want that for you. And I think many times the thing that messes God's people up is they get, they get high expectation for somebody. They forget human nature. They forget that human nature is always going to be there. And they forget the fact that, you you know, you're working with them is based on their response back to you. It can't never be that way. You're working with people has to be based on your kindness, the desire of your heart to give them what God gave you. It can't be based on what you get back. Because when you have that expectation, it's going to get dashed and it's going to get crushed. And when it comes to people uh, getting God's advice and getting the principles of the Word of God, I never assume anything. 
I, I never allow myself to get into a position where I have expectations. I, I always look at it from a realistic standpoint. And I, I based that on something I heard a guy say probably 40-some years ago. His name was Manly Beasley. You remember Manly Beasley, don't you, Chris? I'm sure some of you do. He's an incredible guy. He had five terminal illnesses at the same time. We're still trying to figure out which one killed him. He could only speak for about 30 minutes, and he'd have to go back to his hotel room. He, he was weak all the time. He looked like he was already dead, thin, emaciated, very pale. He had to carry a handkerchief with him because sometimes blood would come up when he was speaking. But he was one of the godliest men I ever met in my life. And he was an incredible, incredible witness for the Lord. He wasn't a loud preacher. He wasn't a hard preacher. Very soft-spoken. You had to really work at listening to him. But he was the epitome of wisdom. And I was listening to him preach one time. And he was preaching on human nature. And he was preaching on how we should never get discouraged when we work with people because people are not always going to do what you want them to do. And he was talking about the very thing about not having high expectations, just letting God be God in the situation. And here's what he said. He asked a question. He says, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And he paused just like I just did. And he looked down and he said, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? And a guy in the front row said, well, you get, you get lemon, lemon juice. And he laughed and he said, that's, that's not always true. He said, back home in my town where I live, a couple of years ago, we had a guy that was going into the grocery stores and he was taking poison in a syringe. And he was going into the produce section and he was injecting the poison into the lemons. And the people were buying the lemons, taking them home to make lemonade. And then 40 or 20 or 30 of them died because they were poisoned. And he said, the reason why I, I asked him that, he says, what do you get when you squeeze a lemon? Because everybody thinks that you get lemon juice. But he says, you know what? In reality, when you squeeze a lemon, you get what's really on the inside. And then he said this. What do you get when you squeeze a Christian? You see, you would think that when you squeezed a Christian, you'd get what was godly on the inside coming out. But he says, when you squeeze it, when a Christian gets squeezed, you know what you see? You see what's really on the inside. I never forgot that. Nothing will show us what you and I are really made of more than when we're squeezed. Nothing will be more apparent and be more obvious to where you're at, where I'm at, and what we're going through in life is that when it all comes down around us and we get squeezed, we really see what's on the inside. And that's why I never have any expectations about people. That's why I never come to the place where I think people, you know, more highly than, than where they should be. Because you're going to get what's on the inside. And we think Christians, because you're saved, ought to handle everything and do what God says, don't we? But they don't. You know why? Because when you squeeze them, you just get what's really there on the inside. And again, this is the reason why uh, so many people separate themselves, so many pastors separate themselves from people. It's a, it's a great answer why they'll isolate themselves from their own congregations. They'll have a staff member, or many times in many churches, they'll put on a pretty professional counselor to deal with it. That way the pastor never has to get his hands dirty. 
He can walk out and everybody loves him. He never has to get into a scenario where he really has to get down and dirty with problems and people who are struggling through things. And I watch many of you, you take it, you take it, you take it, and you just keep working with people. And the fact that somebody didn't treat you right or somebody did something great injustice to you or something that it didn't work out good. And you know what? And you were not at fault, but you know as well as I do, you're going to get hammered with it at some point in time. It never stopped you. The next person I give you, the next person you meet, the next person you start working with, your kindness is just as clear and as pure as it always has been. And you amaze me. You really do. I mean, come on, who would put up with that? Uh, there was a guy a couple of years ago over in Overland Park, he put an ad in the paper that for $25 for an hour, you could come over and yell at him, scream at him, cuss him out, and say whatever you wanted to say to him, and get it out of your system. I haven't seen his ad for quite a while now. He's probably down in Florida on the beach someplace, making a million dollars on a thing. You amaze me. I mean, why would you put up with that? Why would you go from person... And you know, in the world that we live in today, you know this is true. You probably got to go through eight bad ones to find two good ones. This is the way it is. Why, why, would, why would you do that? Why would you put up with that abuse? Why would you continually put yourself in scenarios where you're going to do good for somebody and they're going to come back and clobber you, and yet it never affects your attitude? It never does. You amaze me. I mean, why would you put up with that if your, if your motive wasn't pure and right and your desire wasn't to give people the kindness that Christ saw and gave you? It wouldn't be worth it. Not worth it. All the hassle, all the drama. It's simply a desire to do what God saved you for. The way he, he, he loved you and me through his kindness in spite of human nature. In all our devices. And come on. We all have put our devices up there with God at some point in our life. We all have rejected people who tried to tell us in our early years about God and life. But you know what? You're here today. You're here today doing what you're doing because somebody had the right desire of kindness. That no matter what I said or you said. It didn't deter them because they were doing it based on what God did for them. Not to get something back from you. I mean, listen, in the ministry, you'll get clobbered many, many times in your life. And you know what? For, for most people, it just isn't worth it. Most people are too thin-skinned. They can't handle it. Unless you're doing it with the right reason and the right motive and you're understanding your calling. And there's the problem right there. We as God's people today do not understand our calling in Christ Jesus. Amen. We do not understand why he called us. We have no clue of it. We're here this morning because, well, we're supposed to be here. You're here this morning because Bible asked me Thursday night where I was if I'm not here. You're here this morning because you you just go to church on Sunday. You got the right Bible. You like to hear the sermons. You like to hear that. You're here for that. No, no, no. You're here to perfect the calling that God has called you in. Amen. And if you're here for any other reason, you're here for the wrong reason. Amen. I'm not saying you shouldn't be here, and I'm glad you are here, because somewhere in the process you may get the call. Pick up the phone. But God's people, they don't understand why God has called them. 
They don't understand their calling. And they don't understand the price that will need to be paid to answer that call. And for many of God's people, cost is too much. I don't like controversy, never have. I, I, if, if it came down in the military for hand-to-hand combat and I had to choose between going hand-to-hand with somebody, I'd just be a sniper and shooting from 300 yards away, no personal involved in it. Long-distance calling, the best thing to being there. I don't like controversy. But let me tell you something, when you get into ministry, you're going to have controversy. Amen. And God looks to you to be the one that does what's right with it through kindness. God looks at you to be the one that has to take the stand and hold the line. Now look at the last part of that verse. A poor man is better than a liar. Now there's nothing more worse in dealing with people than a person who will lie to you. Uh, and, and, you know, and later lie about you. There's two stages to lying, by the way. Uh, when I deal with somebody, I always start by saying, you know what, I don't care what you did. I don't care where you're coming from. I don't care what you've been involved in. I will help you. I will do everything I can do for you. I only ask one thing. Don't lie to me. I don't care how bad it is, how rotten it is. I don't care. If you lie to me, then you're going to send me down the wrong road and I'm going to do for you the wrong thing. And I don't have time to waste with that. Don't lie to me. Amen. And, I'll, and I'll tell you, because truthfulness is the basis for any relationship. If you don't have a trust and a truth in it, you don't have anything. Without that, you don't have one. You know, I base, I base my true friendships with people on just two things. Just two things. And I, I, and I don't, I, I, know I have, I have a lot of people in my life, and I, and I, and I love people. I'm a people person. That's, that's the way I, I, way God made me. That's the way I am. But I, I, I my true friends, I, 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 I simply uh, base my true friends on two simple concepts. The first one is loyalty. Loyalty. Loyalty is key with me. I, I, I may do a lot of things that are stupid. And I take my, my share of my blame for it. And I've been times when I've done something dumb that I've apologized to somebody for it. I don't have a pride problem. If I'm wrong, I am wrong. But I'll tell you one thing I will never do to anybody in this church. Never. Never on any circumstances, on any day of the week. I will never be disloyal to you. Never. I don't care what you say, what you do, how you feel about me. I will never be disloyal to anybody in this church. Because loyalty is number one with me. And loyalty to me is based on uh, the great definitive chapter in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Now that doesn't mean we always will get along, and that doesn't mean that I won't have to drop the hammer sometimes. Don't mistake that for disloyalty. But you will always, I will always have your best interest at heart, even if you don't like what I say to you. But I look at David's mighty men of valor back there in 2 Samuel chapter 23. There's the definitive on loyalty. And the second word is truthfulness. And that's found in 2 Corinthians 4.2, the manifestation of truth to every man's conscience. Those two things are, are the basis of what, uh, what, I, what I build my friendships on, my, my true close friendships. The secret to a successful ministry, and most young guys never get this today, they never get it. You get this from the old boys, you don't get it from the new modern age today. The secret of, of any successful ministry is always and has always been God giving you people who believe in what God has called you to do. That's where it starts. 
God will bring people into this church, any church, where God gives me as a pastor the vision. He gives me the direction I want to go. And then he'll bring people in and will buy into what I want to do. Understand where I'm at. Get my heart in the thing and say, you know what? I'm going to help him do that because that's what I believe God wants me to do. And that's the key mark of any successful ministry is having people, having people who believe in what God is doing with you. And then the second aspect is the same people being willing to pay the price with you to get it done. And there will always be a price to pay. And this is why most of God's people don't ever get into the ministry. They're not willing to pay the price. They'll let one person ruin their life, one their day. It'll, it'll taint everything for the rest of their life, for the next five years of their life. Some of you simply amaze me. I watch you take it and take it and take it. You get some of the rawest deals I ever saw in my life. And yet, next person comes in there, that desire of kindness it just permeates everything that you do. And it's just like the last thing never affected you. That's pure motive. That's you doing the right thing for the right reason. I don't know what to tell you. You amaze me. You really do. I like people around me who don't tell me what I want to hear, but will simply tell me the truth. I can handle anything as long as it's the truth. And as your pastor and as your friend, I will never tell you uh, what you want to hear either, either from the pulpit or in our personal life. I mean, it's just that simple. I, I may put it in such a way to not to be mean-spirited or not to be hurtful, uh, but you'll get it right across the plate, waist high, man. Amen. You know, I, I'm sure it's probably okay for me to say this. There's only one real thing I've ever appreciated about my ministry. And I ought to be able to say this is my ministry. You may appreciate other things about it. You may not appreciate anything about it. But I appreciate one thing about my ministry. I really do. And I've always held this as a, as a thing of, of, of a badge of honor, so to speak. And the thing I appreciate about my ministry is it's just black and white. People either love me or they hate me. I've never been in my eyes for 40 years and said, well, I kind of like you. You either like me or you don't like me. And I like that. Amen. Somebody, I didn't even know we had this. I found it accidentally the other day. You know, we got a, we got a Facebook page. Here I am up here talking about how I hate Facebook. And I get on there and I don't even know what I was looking for. And there was a Facebook page about our church. I don't know who did it, but I got intrigued in it, you know, and I thought to myself, wow, this is, you know, and then, and then I, I looked down at the bottom and there was comments. And I thought, oh, this ought to be good. So I, you know, here we go. You know, it was one of the funniest things I ever did because the comments weren't like this. Boy, he tells it like it is and puts it right to you. Man, he, 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 he doesn't, he doesn't waste any words. He puts it right out there and gives it to you. Somebody else would say, who does he think he is? <laughs> all the way down there, it was black and white. There wasn't anybody, anybody in all the comments that said, yeah, he's all right. <laughs> I like that. You know what? That Bible says, if a trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? Now, you may never show up around here for the battle itself, but you know there's one going on. And in any issue in my ministry, nobody's ever wondered where I stood on something. They may not like it, but they know where I'm at, and I'm good with that. 
I, I, the idea in my mind, and growing up working around churches and pastors, is this little mealy mouthed guy who, when you shake his hand, is like picking up a dead fish. <laughs> and he's afraid to raise his voice above six decibels, and he just tries to get along with everybody. And he just, you know, he's just like a little guy that, you know, probably when he goes home, he stands in a corner and shivers a lot. You know, it's a thing where I, I just. Hey, you know what? When you have the desire in your heart to be kind, and that is the motive behind whatever you do, you can preach some hard messages. I preach hard messages here, and many of you know and accept those messages. You know why? Because you know even though they're hard, and you may not like everything that hits you, you know I love you. And you know I would never hurt you. Now you know what? On the worst day of your life, you know I would be there. And you know that. So you take it from me. And that's why, that's why some of you amaze me. You just absolutely keep taking it and taking it. And yet you just keep putting it out. Verse 23 says, The fear of the Lord tendeth the life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. Boy, that's a great verse. The fear of the Lord tendeth the life. You know, when you got saved, God had a plan for your life. God has it all laid out what He wants you to do. He wants to get you from point A to point B. He really does. Now, there's an exception to that, and there's reasons why some people that are Christian and love the Lord, they die early. Many times we scratch our heads and say, why did that teenager die? He was doing such good for God. Or why did that preacher die? He was really on fire for God. I don't have time to get into this morning, but the answer to that is in Isaiah 57, verse 1 and 2. It will answer so many questions why people die Christian before their time. So there's a clause to this principle, but the principle stands as it, as it speaks here. The fear of the Lord tendeth the life. You know why that is? Because staying with the Word of God will always produce a longer life because it will always produce a better life. God wants to give you the longest life possible within His plan to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. But the devil wants to put everything in your life to shorten that life. You remember the first man killed in the Bible was a young man that God wanted uh, wanted to use and the devil stopped him. You know, fear is a good thing. It really is. It's a healthy emotion that God gave us. Bible says in Proverbs 3, 7, By the fear of the Lord, men depart from evil. Bible says that Noah moved with fear in preparing an ark or saving of his household. And old Bob Jones used to to say, Don't worry about being afraid. It's better to be hell scared than hell scorched. You know, the Word of God, by design, will put principles in our lives that God will take, and when you put them in and receive them, will give you the longest life with God as possible, within the exception of Isaiah 57. The world now will put everything in your life to shorten that. And I want to tell you something. There's some things, kids, there's some things out there in life that will hurt you. There's some things out there in life that if you do on a continual basis will shorten your life. Every time they have a prom season in the high schools, prom weekend, you know what they do? The highway patrol brings in an old beat up car that's been in a bad wreck where four or five people have been killed in it, puts it in the front yard. Everybody has to see where they go. You know why they do that? Hoping that kid will get the idea you can get killed if you drive stupid on prom night. Put fear in them. They come in there and see that thing, and, and uh, it, was, it, it puts a fear in them. It really does. 
Uh, you know, you, you have young people that get into drugs, and drugs becomes a, you know, and, I, and many of you were in drugs at one time, and God delivered you from it. Praise the Lord for that. But you know that there's many, there are many that have not been delivered from it. I, I never did drugs. I never did. I, I never, never tried them one time in my life. You know why? I was always afraid to. Amen. I was afraid to. I saw what it did to the brain cells of everybody else out there. I didn't want to be that way. I was afraid to. You have young people commit suicide all the time. What a terrible thing. I would be afraid to commit suicide. I heard too many messages by Mel Sabaka and Tommy Thomas talking about the Christian that got out of fellowship with God and got so despondent and he, he took the easy way out. So he got himself his 38 pistol and, and he said, I, I'm not going to get right with God. I'm just going to check out. I'm going to take the coward's way out and I'm going to kill myself. So he took the pistol, put it to his head, must have flinched at the last moment. The gun went off, just went up that. He spent the next 33 years as a vegetable. I was afraid of things like that. I was like the kid in the army we had, and the guy went up to the drill sergeant, and he said, I was standing there, he said, Sergeant, he said, I, I just, I can't get this down. I, I just, I'm never going to qualify with my rifle. He said, I just can't, I just can't, I'm not. He said, I, I, I'm just going to go and, and, and shoot myself in the head. Drill sergeant said, okay, but you better take two bullets. Meaning he'd miss with the first one. I, I could never commit suicide. I, I'd always be, to me, it's a coward's way out. And I, I never try. I never wanted to take the cowardly way out of anything. I, I, to me, it's just the thing where you just got to stick it out, and you got to get to it, and you got to get through it. Yes. But I've seen alcoholism. I, I never drank. Never did. I had an uncle. His name was Vernon. He was really my favorite uncle. He was my mom's youngest brother, and he was really, as a young kid, he was a hero of mine. Vernon was in the Korean War, and uh, he, 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 he had an emotional breakdown. He was in a foxhole someplace for a fixed position, and, and uh, his friend got a bullet through the head and splattered brains all over him, and he tried to help him, and uh, shrapnel, he had, to the day he died, he had shrapnel all in his back. It would just work its way out. But he, he, he really suffered emotionally from all of that. Won a silver star, won a bronze star. He was a hero of mine, but he was a terrible alcoholic. He could never get past. He went to drink to get past all of the horror of that war in Korea. And I was just a little guy, but he was always my mom's. He always liked my mom. Uh, she always would show up and where at our house, and we had four or five bars right down the road there. And he would be drunk as a skunk. I remember one time he showed up at the house and he wanted he wanted uh, he wanted some more booze. And my mom said, "We don't have any booze here." And he says, "Yes, you do." And she said, "We don't have any, Vernon." He said, "I know you do. I want a glass of booze right now." So my mom just gave him a glass of cold water. He was so drunk he drank the water down, thought it was booze. That's drunk. I saw things like that. I thought I don't want to be that way. I was afraid to do those things. I'm not saying I didn't do stupid things. I did, but I was afraid to do things like that. There's things that will get you killed or, or wreck your body so badly uh, through a stronghold that you'll never, you'll, never be, you'll never recover from it. And you'll die way before your time. My dad was a good man. He died when he was 55, 56 years old. He died of lung cancer. I never smoked. I watched my dad smoke four or five packs of cigarettes a day. 
I don't ever remember seeing my dad without a cigarette in his hand. He died way before his time. My dad weighed about 210 pounds when I went off to the army. When I finally came back on a medical leave, he died diagnosed with lung cancer. When he finally died, I think he weighed about 80, 75, 80 pounds. I watched cancer emaciate him. I watched him go in and, and, and cut him from here all the way down around and all the way over here. Took out one whole lung and took out a quarter of the other lung. He could hardly breathe. Well, we couldn't find him one day and I walked out to look for him and went down to the garage. He was down there having a cigarette. Killed him. I was afraid of things like that in my life. Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 12 that a three-fold cold is not easily broken. You take that thing that looks like it's harmless and you wrap that thing around and pretty soon you're five packs a day or you're, 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 you're an alcoholic out of control or your drugs out of control. You'll never break it. You'll never break it. You'll never break it. I remember when I started going down to the City Union Mission back in the late 70s or mid 70s, 76, 77, the average transient down there, the man they worked with was in his 60s, 70s, uh, in 75, maybe 80. Now you go down there, they're 18, 19, and 20. You know why? Human nature. Human nature. And then it says, He that hath it, fear the Lord, shall abide satisfied. And it shall not be visited with evil. Now there's two great words, abide and satisfied. To abide means to rest and to dwell. To continue permanently in uh, the same, same, uh, same state. To be fixed, to be unmovable, to endure, to be able to bear all things. And a child of God, as a child of God, we abide in Christ and He abides in us. That's our rest when the Bible talks about rest. Our dwelling place. That's where we are fixed and unmovable. Where we can endure all the things because we abide in Him and He in us. Now we abide in Christ through the principles, the Word of God, the counsel that we take. We talked about it last week. God's principles on life will be the building blocks of our ability to abide with Him. And then you have the word satisfied. Well, what an elusive word for God's people today. God's people today aren't satisfied with anything. The great missing element in Christianity today. Our satisfaction will only come through our abiding. And that will only come from getting, as we talked about last week, hearing God's counsel and receiving His instructions. Being satisfied that you're where you need to be with Christ. Being satisfied that you know who you are in Christ. Being satisfied that you know today how He looks at you and what He expects and how you look at Him and what He expects. You see, satisfaction is not having everything you want in life. Satisfaction is having everything that God wants to have with you in life. Satisfied with the, and the content with the things that you have in life. Satisfied that your motive and desire is based on the love of God. And you give it to others through your kindness. Then the last part of that verse. And you're satisfied that no evil will come to visit you. Now that's kind of a weird verse because Job had evil come to visit him. 
And we'll all go through some tough times in life. But God's people, again, don't get the meaning behind the principle. I read a book one time that says, Why do bad things happen to good people? And the truth of the matter is, nothing ever bad happens to God's people. All things work together for good that doesn't love God. We get discomforted because we don't understand what God does in our life and where we're at. We get discomforted because we're not willing to pay the price. We get discomforted because we don't understand the suffering of cross of Christ on the cross. Therefore, when a little suffering comes our way, we can't make the parallel and realize that this is all I got to put up with for him after what he put up with me. You see, when you get to the relationship with God in your life that you need to have, when you get to that point in your life that you're satisfied, when you get to the point in that life that you're really, truly abiding with Him, there'll be nothing that He won't put into your life that you can't just wrap your arms around and say, you know what, Lord, we'll get through it together simply because of the fact that what you went through for me would never compare with what I'm going through for you. And maybe you're going to take what I'm going through right now and put somebody else in my proximity that I can tell and show the kindness of God. Maybe you're going to put me through this and can you were willing to pay the price for me to get what I have for you. Am I willing to pay just a small price to get somebody else the same truth that you gave me? Right motive, right desire. That's what's behind that. That's how it works. God's people today have the greatest book that was ever written. They have the Holy Spirit of God that lead and guide them. How the local New Testament church to teach them and put them uh, to the work of God that God saved them for. And yet they are the most unsatisfied people in all the history of the church. The Laodicean church age. Their desire and motive is not found in giving their lives completely to Christ, but rather to serve themselves first and to give God what's left over. Satisfaction only can come from abiding, and abiding can only come from the right motive and a desire based on God's counsel to us that will always stand. You know, every time I see the word satisfied, I think of Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley was a great hymn writer. And his favorite verse was Psalm 17, verse 15. And it says, as for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. When he died, and he died March the 29th, 19, uh, 1788, he wrote over 6,000 hymns. The one we like to sing, And Can It Be? He wrote that one. And when he died, the day before he passed away, they they brought all of his friends and his preacher friends and his family came around to bed and they basically said goodbye to him like we've all done so many times to somebody that, that's going to pass away. And he quoted that verse and he said, I'll be satisfied when I wake with the likeness of his face. Everybody said amen. Next day, got worse. Day after that, he was really bad. Doctors were around him could almost not hear him say it, but he quoted the verse one more time. That night, they thought he had died. Of course, they didn't have the modern things like they have today. They had to get down real close and listen to see if there's any breath or put a mirror in front of your nose to see if it's fogging up. The doctor said, I laid my head real close down to hear if him breathing. And almost as a whisper, I heard him the word, Satisfied. 
And he went home to be with the Lord. I wonder if you and I died today. What would be the last word that we would speak to everybody around us? Oh God, why me? Oh God, what about this? What about that? Oh God, I just bought that new boat. Your kids will have a great time in it. Satisfied. Out of everything that we do with God and the Word of God here, out of everything that we try to do when you work with people, and you amaze me with your attitude and your unselfishness of always being not like that man in Proverbs with kindness. At the end of the day, of everything that we do for each other, you do for somebody else is to bring them to the point where they abide in Christ and they're satisfied. I think the worst thing for a child of God in all of the world is to go through life not being satisfied. Got the greatest book. Got the Holy Spirit of God. God give you a church. God give you, God give you everything that you need. And yet, why are we not satisfied? And the answer is, we're abiding someplace else than where we should be. And that's the key. Great verse. Thank you for all that you do here. Thank you for all you men and women who unselfishly give of your time to others and take it and take it and take it. But the desire of your heart is kindness. Let's pray.